Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to have Richard Dorney alongside me. Richard is a director at Strong Mind Resiliency Training, a specialist provider of training in mental health awareness, resilience and trauma management. Uh, Richard, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Scott, good afternoon, lovely to be on. It's wonderful to welcome you onto the airwaves with us, Richard, for sure. Um, The whole reason we are here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into the subject, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start things there um, because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, But for yourselves in your line of work, just how has it affected you and your business? It's had a significant impact on us, but perhaps not in the way that people might think. Um, as you outlined, what Strongline does is it delivers specialist training uh, in the management of trauma, resilience, and mental health. And so, of course, we are seeing that in increased measures, and therefore, uh, what leaders need to understand really um, how to manage this unique and novel crisis. And so, what we found ourselves doing is refocusing. Um, whilst we were, when, the, when the, uh, the COVID crisis first started, we were doing some training with the police in uh, in Yorkshire. And we thought, actually, that's going to be the only normal face-to-face training now for a significant period of time. And within days, we were being contacted by the leadership in uh, certainly in public sector organisations to refocus and to deliver virtual training around some of these specialist subjects. So we found ourselves dealing with um, leaders in emergency services and actually particularly in uh, social care where things have really been turned on their heads in terms of service providers and impact on on their clients, you know, and, and staff are struggling with that. And, of course, the managers have had to look in a completely different way of how to manage their outcomes and, of course, significantly how to manage their staff. And that's the area... I think that we've had to focus on the most. And so refocusing onto virtual training has been a big step for us, having to completely rethink our content and the way we do things. But actually, I think we've now been very successful with that. And certainly the feedback from our clients is that it's needed and, uh, and management and leaders at all levels uh, absolutely need some prompts on how to manage people in this changed environment and the stresses And just considering that it is your forte, just how important do you think that mental health is within leadership itself, both in terms of safeguarding your own as a business executive and also that of the people around you? Because the importance of mental health and well-being has really been thrust back into the limelight by this pandemic situation, hasn't it? It has, absolutely. And uh, I mean, we're dealing with lots of different organisations. So the word trauma is banded around a lot. I think over medicalised things sometimes. But there are absolutely people in the public sector, particularly, although not exclusively, who really are at the cone face of this. So we've been working with nurses and with managers within the NHS uh, to look at the impact on their staff, um, the uncertainty, um, the dissatisfaction in 
some areas around some controversial subjects. There's the void of information about the management of uh, of this illness in all sorts of industries, and that that disorientation and that void means that people cry out for leadership. When we are disorientated, when we're lost, we need people to tell us what to do. And there have been areas in the country where the guidance for quite senior people really hasn't been there. When it has been there, mm. it's been changing on a daily basis. And that's caused huge amounts of frustration. I think we should also be conscious that many workers, lots of staff members, have been personally impacted. So there's that sense of social isolation, which is very significant. Um, but some people have lost colleagues, they've lost loved ones, and that is generally traumatic for many people. So this is new stuff for many managers. They dealt with stress a lot. But it's not very often for many people that have had to deal with losing colleagues on the phone for for this, this particular illness. It is a very valid point that you make there in the sense that some guidelines that have come from government during this time haven't always been clear or they have changed regularly. And it really has forced the hand of business leaders to be able to be reactive to the changing circumstances. You're absolutely right. And albeit business leaders have had to really step up to the plate and inspire and motivate their employees, keep them sort of reassured during a time like this, as can be expected. It's really hammered home this idea that it can be a very lonely place at the top, having to shoulder all of that responsibility. So when you are in a leadership position and maybe you do need a little bit of inspiration of your own during a time like this, where would you say is best to go looking for that? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I read a lot, and I read a lot of, uh, you know, I've minimized some of my former career. I read a lot of military history, and there's some pretty inspirational people who really have faced uncertain times. So having a read of, you know, some of their literature and how they manage is really important. But I think turning to some of our traditional coping methods can go for them, keeping yourself physically fit, maintaining our social contact and turning to our peers. I think peer support in this is so, so important. Mm. You know, wherever that's coming from, but if there is someone within a business that you can turn to and share your fears, that's really important. And it's something that we've talked to businesses about over and over, the importance of peer support in challenging times. People's resilience is not necessarily being undermined, but it's it's been made more difficult. Um, The importance of a listening ear whether that's someone senior to you or whether it's someone of the same grade as you, and just being able to share your concerns and your problems. Sometimes just have a good moan. That's really important mm. stuff, and it helps. There's no doubt about that. There is good evidence around peer support as well. Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view. And you mentioned there, of course, your career in the uh, the forces, um, which sort of spanned almost 40 years before you went into business for yourself, Richard. Just sort of focusing on that period of your life for a moment. Are there any elements of leadership that you sort of took on from that time that you would say you've carried forward into sort of your civilian and business career? I think so. I think uh, you could probably talk all that. I had some very good leaders. Still a few bad ones as well, but, but mainly good leaders. And this is something that the military gets right, I think. And they start their leadership development very, very early on. They're quite young people. And that pays dividends. But there are some some really good principles. But I think one of the most important things in business is the maintenance of morale. 
we hear a lot about morale in a business, so what we do know actually is very clear that when there is low morale in an organisation, there are going to be higher rates of sickness absence and, and low mental health. There's no question about that. There is good evidence. So maintaining morale is really important if we're going to maintain productivity and avoid sickness absence. And there are really four facets to morale, I think. Having a faith in a common purpose, first of all. So understanding that the organisation is on the same song sheet and is moving in the same direction. Everyone's on board and they understand that purpose. The second one, I think, is the faith in the leadership. So having trust, feeling empowered, you know, trusting your leaders and that they have your interests at heart. And the competence, of course, that's really important. Mm. The third thing is having a faith in each other. So the people around you, you will all support each other. We're back, we're back into our peers support where we came in here. And the final thing is the one that's talked about a lot, and that is having adequate rest and recuperation. Really. So if we don't resource people properly, if we overwork them, if we underman them, then there is no surprise that they become burnt out. And you know that fuels no morale. And I think those four principles work in all organisations. I think you could even apply them at a national level, actually. Um, you know, faith in common purpose, faith in the leadership, I think those are uh, those are pertinent at any time. The other thing I would say, well, I could talk all day, but the other thing I would say I think is what the military calls mission command. So you give someone a task, you tell them what it is that you want to achieve, but you don't tell them how to do it. You give them some parameters, but you allow them to crack on and do that in their own way, albeit reporting at stages. And that certainly works very well in my experience. And just considering the uh, the future, Richard, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, what would you say um, is what you are looking to achieve over the course of the uh, the next 12 months at Strong Mind Resiliency Training? Just bearing in mind that we are probably going to be in this COVID-19 situation for the long haul. And indeed, one year from now, where is it that you do see yourselves being? Well, I absolutely see us doing what we're doing now um, in, in hopefully an improved way. I mean, we went into this not just for commercial reasons, but actually because there is a, you know, there is a fight for the common purpose here. What we want to do is to help people, particularly those at the conflicts and emergency services, the police, the NHS, who are working their socks off and are badly under-resourced at the moment. And they really do need support. So anything we can do to help their managers, to help their leaders, and they are, of course, subtly two different things, um, but anything we can do to improve their lot and that's going to put us in a good place as far as I can see. And finally, just before I do let you go, Richard, um, what is your message for those younger generations of aspiring leaders that may well be tuning into this and are looking to perhaps maybe start their own businesses or step into a leadership role in an established firm for the first time? I think dig deep, have confidence. But if you want to be a leader, there's one crucial piece of information that you need to remember, I think, at whatever stage of your seniority you may be. I think, the difference between leadership and management. You manage things, you lead people. And I think that's a sound piece of advice. And people remember that. You lead people, you manage things, you can't go far wrong. 
Mm, there is a fundamental difference between both aspects, Richard. I think you are absolutely right in what you're saying there. And um, I think that's incredibly sound advice for anybody that might be tuning into our podcast today, for sure. Um, sounds as if for your future plans as well, there's plenty to be getting on with over the course of the next few months. And it would be a real pleasure, in fact, for me to welcome you back onto the programme at some point within the next year, just to see how things are coming along in borning those hopes out. We'd be delighted to come along again. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure having you on this afternoon, Richard. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because there are still a great many different ways this um, pandemic could ultimately pan out. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely. I'd also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Richard Dorney, Director at Strong Mind Resiliency Training, onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City among other clubs but of course he remains most well known for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition that came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now in his interview Sir Jeff will be looking back on some of the highs and lows of his career the impact of good leadership and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who've been working so hard during this challenging time that is coming up next And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if if, uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, A for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, 
wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of 
people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of really, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, 
into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul de sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul de sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across, the, across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the, uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you're able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. 
astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football it's just that that's how it, how it happened uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying come and have a trial at this club or that club uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell him to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? 
whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup. Some world class players, and Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was 
I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Home City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. 
So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey is I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.